Welcome to the Heme Sapiens podcast, where diverse perspectives in healthcare converge. My name is Sam. I'm one of the co-presidents of CHC, and today I will be interviewing Dr. Lau. We will be discussing occupational therapy and accessibility for children with disabilities. Thank you for listening, and let's get started. Hello, I'm joined with Dr. Lau, who teaches at Toronto University School of Occupational Therapy since the beginning of the program, which has started in 2005. She shares her expertise in child-based assessment and treatment and a broad array of child-based topics within the curriculum. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Lau. Hi, Samantha. So just... An overall question, what is an occupational therapist? Well, we get that question quite often. Um, an occupational therapist is a highly trained professional working in the healthcare field. What I mean by highly trained is that um, a OT needs a minimal degree of a master's degree, uh, but many occupational therapists have a clinical doctorate as well. Uh, we help people with disabilities, acute and chronic conditions of all ages. We help um, increase their personal occupation. So what that really means is that we improve their function in their daily lives, in their typical routines. We focus on what they need to do and want to do in their everyday world. Some typical occupations include like activities of daily living, like uh, a person needs to dress themselves, they need to eat, they need to um, have functional mobility. Uh, another occupation is uh, participating in play for children or leisure activities for adults. Many occupational therapists work in a school district, so the focus is on um, the role as a student, so students can achieve their, uh, their education for adults. We help them with their uh, healthcare management, um, focusing on medical management and physical activity, sleep and rest. And for all ages, there is also a focus on social participation. So you can see that our field is very broad. Mm -hmm. To summarize it is that we always focus on the person's occupation, what they need to do and what they want to do in their daily lives. That's very interesting. There's a common misconception that occupational therapists work with specific occupations. And when a person thinks of occupation, they think of job, but it can be a different definition, which I think is where the misconceptions come from. Absolutely. And then absolutely, uh, absolutely. An occupation um, work is one occupation. If uh, you are trying to get someone to go back to their, uh, work position, but for the most part, um, occupation is defined as uh, what people need to do to occupy their time and, and uh, fulfill their lives. Mm -hmm. So for my next question, what is your experience with neurodiversity within your work? Um, as, for, as far as neurodiversity, for the past 25 plus years, I've been an occupational therapist and an uh, educator in occupational therapy for the past 15 years. And I have uh, decades of experience working with mostly children who have neurodiversity. So children who um, have uh, ASD, autism, uh, cerebral palsy, um, down syndrome, 
spina bifida, and even children who've had like traumatic injuries, such as a head injury. So I have a lot of experience working with neurodiversity. So what is the current work or research that you are doing? Or if you just finished a research project, what was that about? Um, the current work that I'm doing right now is that I'm not clinically practicing at this moment. I am just focusing on um, being a professor in a grad program at, uh, like you said, at Troll University, Nevada. So I'm focused on preparing future occupational therapists in the entry level uh, doctoral program. It's a three-year program after um, students finish their undergraduate degree. And as far as research, um, I just completed a project with a, uh, a doctoral student on uh, the use of aquatic therapy to help uh, very young children achieve uh, play activities. And um, that was a really fulfilling research project because we focus on not only the children, but training the parents how to participate in play activities with their children um, in the pool. Uh, and uh, they were actually alongside typical children with their parents. So it was a very inclusive environment. Yes, I've been learning a lot in my classes that there is a basis of segregation within recreational activities, especially with neurodiverse children. Have you seen that being improved throughout your work or throughout the 25 years you've been working with neurodiverse children? I think so. I think in general, I think it's very hard when, when uh, the kids get older and uh, there's a, a big focus in Western society on competition. So therefore, uh, it makes it more difficult to be inclusive. Uh, the project that I just finished was on uh, ages zero to three. So it was more like a infant and toddler play group. And in that situation, it was very easy to, uh, to have that full inclusion where there were kids uh, with and without disabilities in the pool with their parents all at the same time. Yeah. Was there any interesting story that came with this research project that you saw within your experience? Well, I think one thing in particular, I mean, um, is another aspect of having a child with a disability is that it could be very isolating. Mm -hmm. And one thing that came out as a byproduct is that the parents reported that they uh, made a lot of friends in this group and they wouldn't have made friends uh, with other families if they if they didn't have the group. So I think that really helped with the, the uh, social isolation of having a young child with disability because sometimes often you don't feel like you fit in and, and that um, it's harder to be in public environments. Wow, I didn't even think of that as a possibility as a byproduct for um, recreational activities. I always think about the subjects or the children within the activity and I always forget that it's also a community base for the parents and families. Absolutely. I mean uh, the community-based aspect of it was a major focus. I uh, absolutely but the personal um, byproduct of of the parents feeling less isolated was just um, truly 
a wonderful um, outcome. Yeah. So moving on to your master's thesis, which I know was a while ago, but we have some questions from <laughs> others about it. Um, I know your master's thesis <laughs> focused on, um, <laughs> I know your master's thesis focused on um, accessibility in computers for children. And then I just had a question, what do accessible computers and devices look like for disabled adults and children? That's funny that you're asking about that. You could probably find it somewhere as far as I actually have a that in a, a publication. So if you really want to look at my master thesis, you can probably find it in the archives and the dusty shelves somewhere. Um, what I can say is that years ago, computers were not very accessible for children, but even the typical computers now, they have the ability to magnify. Um, for people with visual impairments and they have the ability to increase their sound for a person with a um, auditory hearing impairment. Those are pretty standard functions and they even help the elderly population. So those are really good. I think specific to children with, or children and adults with disabilities, I think the focus should be um, highly individualized to their needs. For example, I think for a, a child who has a reading disability, a read function would be really great. So like reading the text, so they don't have to read. Um, and that, that's very useful, even if you do read, but you're a slow reader. If you have the computer read the text for you, you can just listen like a audio book and it will be uh, much easier for a student. The other, um, option is the ability to dictate. And I think if a, any child who has a difficulty with accessibility with writing or typing because of fine motor problems or uh, control of their body, they control their body, the dictate function will be very um, useful. Actually, I would like that. I would like a dictate function, but you, uh, unfortunately, many of the dictate um, programs are not as quick as your ability to type if you're a good typist, um, just for the general population. But I think for a person with disability, if they can't type really well, a dictate function would be phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, lastly, I think for like individuals who are nonverbal and they cannot speak, uh, they can use a computer as an augmentative communication system. And the, so they can uh, program the computer to speak for them. And that would be a, a really great function. Um, I mean, you see that often with children with cerebral palsy, if they're nonverbal. Um, sometimes kids with autism, if they're nonverbal, they can use the computer or iPad as a, a augmentative communication device. Wow. Yeah, I was doing a reading about how esports is actually, or in other words, if you don't know, esports is video games and how that has become more accessible or how video game companies are trying to make that more accessible for children with disabilities and also give them Absolutely. a community. Yeah. You know, what an OT can do is actually uh, help the child or the family modify their uh, gaming device as well mm -hmm. so the 
and actually uh, play the games. So there's many different things that an OT can do as far as like um, helping the child um, assess, access the computer more readily. Um, for example, the child um, has limited upper extremity control, they can make a, a overlay on the keyboard to make it easier for the child to hit certain keys. Mm -hmm. And they can do that with um, uh, 3D printing. So occupational therapists or other people who specialize in, in assistive technology can really help individuals access the computer. And most, I would think most school districts have a um, assistive technology team to help children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, just to kind of switch gears to more of like the distance learning because that has become very popular in the COVID area. In the distance learning era, in what ways do we are we failing children with disabilities and what do you think is an ideal or better system that we could work on? Um, I'm, I would like to think that this pandemic is a temporary issue rather than a permanent issue. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that this situation is ideal for children with disabilities because um, often they need physical help. They need more visual modeling. Mm -hmm. uh, and many children, like children with uh, autism, they need that social participation mm -hmm. and they need to self-regulate in a routine, in a school-based routine, and that they cannot do. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can't socially participate in typical ways. They're not learning the, the typical routine that's necessary for them to, um, to do well in, in that particular situation. So I think that the distance learning may be okay for older children, but I think for like elementary age children, it's extremely difficult. Uh, for, uh, and I've heard that from my my associates who are also special ed teachers as well, uh, that hopefully the younger kids can get back to, physically get back to elementary school as soon as possible. Yeah, and also there's a basis of recreational activities being in absence because of COVID-19 and not having like that escape to like swim, dance, whatever recreational activities one can do outside can very much hinder one's, I guess, overall education as like they're growing up. Yes, I mean, a big part of education is learning how to socialize and, uh, and, and uh, be with other people and participation in recreation is definitely a means of bringing people together. There's social demands in those situations. And I agree with you that um, the pandemic has had a severe negative effect on everybody's um, recreation and, and sort of physical participation has been very difficult. Unless you do a, a isolated activity, but that that's not really recreational for children. Children love to be together. And that includes uh, whether you have a, uh, a disability or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Straying away from distance learning, but how can OTs promote the inclusion of young children within with various disabilities in schools regularly? Well, I would say that most occupational therapists are, I'm not sure if most, but a vast amount of them work in the school district. Um, that's the ma one of the major employers of occupational therapists our school districts across the country and OTs, um, they help children with disabilities uh, be more included in the general education environment. Um, they're excellent at helping in various ways. There's so many different ways. For example, if a child has a problem with their seating, um, they can't sit in a regular chair and OT can help with that. For young children, um, OTs can help children use, uh, very young children, uh, help them use the bathroom if they haven't learned to do that. So that's very helpful because all children need to be self-sufficient as far as their hygiene. Yeah. Uh, for um, children in, in upper elementary school, they can help the teacher modifications for handwriting and typing. Mm -hmm. For social participation, they can focus on helping the child play and socially interact during recess time. Um, for children with um, autism and other behavior problems, um, they can help them with self-regulation, teach them how to uh, uh, breathing techniques, problem solve, um, help them with their self-awareness of sensory overload. So it, OTs can help with the inclusion of children um, who are new who have disabilities in various ways, uh, whether they have a physical disability, um, a, a social disability. Um, it just depends on their individual needs. I think if anything, um, what's overlooked is that occupational therapists can also help neurotypical children using a prevention model. So- Using a what model? Sorry, you cut out. Prevention model. Prevention model. Yes, exactly. Like the federal government, they do al allocate um, funds for for uh, for education, special education, to work more on a prevention model rather than just like the intense intervention, which will be considered special education. Uh, they call it multiple levels of support. So, for examples, um, OTs can help prevent learning problems early on if they can help identify the kids who may have a, a reading problem or a writing problem or self-regulation problem. Uh, and, and this can then prevent them from having more problems later on if they were more integrated and working with the teachers with the lower grades. Um, I mean, for another example of prevention is social skills training. All kids need to learn social skills um, if there is a focus more on social skills training and, and getting along and accepting people who are neurodiverse, that, that's considered more of a prevention perspective. In the social skills training, mm -hmm. how do you address instances like implicit bias with children that are very young? You know what? From my experience, young, young children do not have that implicit bias. That comes age unfortunately and probably exacerbated with their uh, social media but very young children 
in my experience, are very accepting of everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, after more exposure of, of uh, what is ideal, but not really uh, realistic, um, it becomes problematic. And I think in the recent decades, that's more problematic with all the social media, that there's more anxiety, there's more depression, there's uh, uh, more focus on self rather than others. Um, but young children, they're not like that. Young children don't have that implicit bias. They develop that over time from their external environment. Hmm. That is very interesting. I, I can definitely see implicit bias being honed in by social media. Yes, and also the fact that um, uh, children, um, they, they learn not only from social media, but they also learn from their families, from their peer groups, from um, all their environmental groups. Uh, they mold that perception of what is desirable versus what is not desirable. And therefore you develop that, that bias. Mm -hmm. And then um, rather than acceptance of neurodiversity. Uh, on to the next question. Um, how do you see the medical model interplay in your work as an occupational therapist? Um, I think we use a medical model because uh, we need to help uh, figure out or diagnose the exact functional levels of the clients. That's what's demanded of us in, as part of the uh, healthcare team is that we we contribute to finding out what is exactly the problem with uh, the patient or the client. However, um, occupational therapists are educated in the social disability model because we inherently focus on environmental modifications. Mm -hmm. um, so not only changing the individual, but also changing the environment so that the so that the individual could better function. Um, for example, like I said earlier, um, helping individuals access a computer is not uh, necessarily changing the individual, but it's uh, changing the computer. Mm -hmm. And uh, OTs um, help with uh, modifying wheelchairs so individuals can get around their environment more readily. So there's this very strong focus on environmental modifications and I think that falls under a social disability model, not necessarily a medical model of figuring out what is the issue. Yeah. I think we have a good blending of both the medical model and the uh, social disability model. Mm -hmm. The other focus is uh, we have, that we have with our clients is um, empowerment, using an empowerment model where we help clients uh, self-focus on what they want to do what what uh and uh have them communicate what goals they want to achieve in therapy it's not all about what the therapist wants to achieve but what does the client want to achieve uh, what do the uh, parents want to achieve so um there is a strong focus on what um the patient or the client wants to do ultimately because they ideally they should drive the therapy Impossible. So occupational therapists don't necessarily have like a strict step-by-step -step process they need to do when es establishing a relationship with the patient. They 
adapt with the empowerment model to their specific patient and their needs. That's a really good observation. No, we do. We're not very prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's not really a lot of um, uh, step-by-step sort of algorithms that you go by. It is much based. Our clinical reasoning is very much based on looking at the individual and figuring out what they individually want to do and need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to do that, it, it has to be um, highly uh, individualized, like you, uh, and not, it's not prescriptive. It's not the same for everybody. Everybody is uh, different. Everybody is different. Everybody's circumstances are different. Just to add on, like from your experience, I know you haven't been working in the field for a while, but what has, has there been any specific experience as an occupational therapist that has been very heartwarming or maybe changed your perspective? I can't really think of one particular situation that has necessarily been that powerful. However, I think about um, often healthcare professionals are focused on what they need to do like whether it be a, a doctor or a nurse or a therapist. And sometimes what, what clients and patients need is just some human connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And um, I'm just thinking about one of the more powerful situations I've had in the, in the past was working on the burn unit. Um, at Oakland Children's Hospital. There's many years ago. And those, stu- those uh, particular patients were so um, intensely needy because often their parents weren't there in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So, uh, their parents had to work or take care of other children. And, and you know, as therapists, we're, we're really focused on uh, maintaining their range of motion because uh, the scar tissue from the burns can really take over their range of motion. And that's a very intense demand. But I noticed that often the children, uh, they needed more than that. They needed, um, they needed the human touch, they needed uh, reassurance, they needed to have fun. Uh, it wasn't about solely about what the therapist needed to achieve, which was, uh, um, activities to increase their range of motion, but it was more about the human connection is what they needed at that time. Yeah, and that's something that everyone needs. Um, so for any future occupational therapists, do you have anything that you look for in undergraduates that want to be OTs? Well, um, we have like a rubric that we uh, evaluate applicants on. And uh, one of the main things that all healthcare sort of like professionals have to be concerned with is their GPA. Um, and that they make sure that they do reasonably well in their undergraduate education so they can actually apply for any graduate level program. And that, I'm not just talking about OT, but I'm just talking about in general in uh, graduate 
for any graduate degree, you need a, um, a decent showing in your undergraduate career. Um, the other item I think you would need to make yourself stand out is your clinical experience. And that can be inpatient, outpatient, it could be in a special ed classrooms, community centers, um, healthcare, um, uh, mental health facilities as well. So um, any type of those experiences really enhance a, um, an application for any undergraduate wanting to go to a graduate program. Uh, right now, however, I think there's a lot of programs who are like um, not requiring the amount of clinical experience just because those volunteer opportunities are not there because of COVID. Okay. Yes. Um, I think just for this year in particular is a trend that I see that many students are having a difficult time getting those uh, clinical volunteer hours in. Yes. I mean, I'm having a bit of trouble. Um, if I'm trying to find clinical hours, it's mostly remote, which isn't how it usually is, but we want to stay safe. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think um, that's another whole thing is the telehealth. I mean, uh, therapists are breaking into that as well and participating in telehealth, providing therapy remotely. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so for our last question, do you have any final advice for undergraduates just in general? I would say uh, try to do as well as you can in your undergraduate classes is the most important. Um, because I think um, in any program, like I said earlier, your GPA unfortunately is a major predictor in emissions. Um, so, however, if you um, did not do that well, like say your freshman year, um, just due to immaturity or lack of focus, don't despair because um, graduate programs do look at the level of improvement over undergrad. Um, and also if you're a non-traditional student, that helps as well. Um, like returning to, to graduate work. I would say stay focused, you know, and, and try to look at undergraduate education as a process. Um, enjoy your time and work hard, uh, but don't stress out too much over it because um, at the end of the day, you have to be happy with your experience. You know, that, that's really important. I think that all undergraduate students should try to schedule at least one fun thing a day. Not, <laughs> Not study all the time? Yes. And that fun thing could be like, it doesn't have to be like hours on end. It can be like, okay, your fun thing is going to be um, looking at some cute puppy videos or your fun thing is going to be talking to your sibling or playing a video game um, or, you know, looking at social media. I think that's really a fun thing for young people. Um, but everybody should, all undergraduates should schedule at least one fun thing a day. 
Okay, thank you so much for that advice. Um, so that concludes all the questions I have. Thank you so much for meeting with me. You're welcome, Samantha. I wish you the very best of luck. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Lau. So long to our fellow Heme Sapiens. We look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. And it goes a little something like...